the performance? Was it worth showing up for? Probably a mixed review. Probably different than what you're expecting or hoping. So I just came back from teaching, I've been mean, teaching the last couple of weeks, two retreats, one uh, up the hill, mindfulness facilitators retreat, and then I came back from the wilderness. As some of you know, I lead a lot of my retreats and teachings out in nature, in the wild. This, this last week was in the New Mexico wilderness, and uh, not wilderness, well, it was sort of wilderness, yeah, I guess it was, 20 miles down a dirt road, I guess that classifies as wilderness, um, up in the the mountains, the Carson National Forest, a beautiful place called Vallecitos. And so we immerse ourselves in the forest for a week without talking and being very attuned to the natural world as a teacher, both metaphor and literal teacher and mirror for ourselves and our minds and our hearts and very powerful, as those of you who go out to nature know. It's a, it's a great teacher of many things. This year our biggest teachers were about this big, and they were called flies, and there was lots of them. <laughs> they weren't mosquitoes, so that was okay. They just were plentiful. Reminded me of the, this Japanese uh, haiku poet, Isa, who wrote, where there are humans, you will, f this is a haiku, where there are humans, you will find Buddhas and flies. <laughs> we didn't, I didn't see too many Buddhas, but I saw lots of flies. <laughs> Those were the Buddhas. Those were the Buddhas, right? <laughs> Buddhas come in lots of disguises. Yeah, what are your little Buddhas? <laughs> I think some of them were up there in the yurt, in the, in the children's, uh, whatever that is, children's play dome. <laughs> so one of the things that strikes me when I go out into the wild, I go into nature in general, particularly in the wild when it's a little more pristine, is I'm touched by the mm, sacredness of nature and its beauty and its majesty and its power and its fragility. And you know, I've been to this particular ranch for the last 24 years, every year teaching or doing something up there and seeing the different cycles, sometimes extreme drought. The Southwest is, was in an extreme drought, just like we are sometimes abundance of rain, um, but certainly seeing the cycles and the fragility is always very poignant, uh, particularly when you come to know a place and love a place and to see the, the, you know, the particular adversity or the challenges of an ecosystem and of the beings, the creatures in that ecosystem. And I was giving a talk um, towards the end of the retreat, and one of the, the great teachings that can happen when we're outside, as it can in meditation, is that we begin to get a different reference point on our sense of self. Mostly our sense of self is somewhat manufactured and uh, kept alive by the incessant stories and narratives we tell us tell ourselves, right? Like in meditation, how much of your meditation was filled up about stories about guess who, right? Yeah, all the stories of strife and troubles and gain and loss and fear and triumph and all the rest of it, right? And in our lives, in our work, in our world, we can be very preoccupied, self-preoccupied, self-fixated, self-obsessed, um, to the point that drives us nuts when we try and meditate and try to, you know, just be present. And that narrative that 
default mode network of the brain that's constantly spinning a story about ourselves doesn't shut up (laughs) as much as we would like it to. And if we're not aware, we take that to be who we are. We take that to be the truth. That story that you spin, that you, this idea, the self-image that you're projecting to the world, we think that's real. We think that's actually how people see us and perceive us. It's just a complete story and fabrication in our own coconut. It has a little semblance to reality, but not a lot. So when we're outdoors, those outdoor lovers here will know this quite well. When we're outdoors, we can. Uh, what happens is the sense of self that's so, you know, so busy in our minds can tend to quieten a little. And the longer we go, and the further we go into the woods or the mountains, the quieter that 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 narrative uh, can become. And we tap into a different sense of self. We tap into what Arnie Ness was an early environmentalist called the ecological self. Not the personal self, but the ecological self that doesn't take the boundary of who we are to be the skin, but understands that who we are is intimately, inextricably connected with the vast ecosystems of the earth that we live in. We are part ocean, we're skin-bound ocean. The salinity of our blood, of our tears, the oxygen that's milling about the atmosphere forms part of who we are, every inhale, every exhale. The earth that we walk on, the earth that we eat, the earth that we ingest is part of who we are. The water from streams, from the mountains, from the clouds, from the oceans, it's partly who we are. We don't normally think like that. We normally think, well, this is me, and it's covered in clothing, and that's you lot over there. And stay away. (laughs) Keep your distance. So partly what these wisdom teachings, Buddhism, are challenging us is to challenge that limited notion of self. limited notion of, or misdeluded notion of separation, that we're not as separate and as independent as we like to think we are. The word individual comes from the Latin individus, which means indivisible. That's quite a different understanding when we think of individual implying separateness rather than indivisible. Indivisible from what? From everything. We can look at this Molecularly, energetically, electrically, scientifically, you know, we're not some separate entity. We're intimately connected. So I want to talk about this and some of its implications tonight in our, in our time. This is from um, Dr. King, who put it this way. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All persons are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Another great thinker, Einstein, put it this way. He says, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself or herself, thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. 
So an optical delusion of consciousness. So what happens when we have an optical delusion of consciousness is we believe we're separate. We believe we can have dominion. We believe that our actions don't have consequences. We believe that it's all, uh, we're all in it for ourselves and screw everybody else. It allows us to do unspeakable things to people, uh, to other peoples and other species, because we believe we're separate. Look what war media machines do prior to going to war. They make the other, the enemy, other. They demonize the other so then we can drop bombs on them, so we can dehumanize them, so then we can go to war. It's a history of civilization, so-called. So, and of course, one of the natural consequences of that believing in sense of separateness is we, as we move through our lives and the landscape and the earth as if, as if we're not that much in relationship, as if we can do whatever we want and not, and, and not have consequences, which of course is coming home to roost. And I don't need to probably remind you of all the ways that uh, blindness as a, as a species, a blindness not understanding this sense of ecological self and the impact it's having on the planet and on weather systems and on climate and on water and the acidification of the oceans and all of the other uh, very tragic consequences of this uh, delusion of individualism, individualism and separation. So I never thought I'd be quoting the Pope when I um, was giving a Dharma talk. I've quoted the president a number of times, which I'm, I didn't think I'd be doing that too much. And, um, you know, being raised Catholic, but being somewhat of a um, disenchanted Catholic, uh, yeah, I didn't think the Pope's words would make it much into my Dharma talk. But here we are. Everything's connected. We have an amazing Pope who, um, uh, you know, wrote a really beautiful encyclical around climate change and the moral imperative. What I loved about his writing about climate change is he brought it back to being a moral issue. He brought it back to being a spiritual issue. And one of the things that's haunted the environmental movement since the 60s is uh, just like uh, the division of church and state in this country, there was a separation, a a wanting to uh, go down a more scientific, secular path to appeal to people's consciences and uh, leaving leaving the, the spiritual moral dimension out of the argument. And I think he did a brave thing by bringing in the moral dimension that because climate change and because of all the disastrous effects it is having and will continue to wreak habit um, mostly on the poor, mostly those who are already disadvantaged will be the ones who suffer the most. Therefore it is a moral imperative, especially for those in positions of privilege and power, to actually take action. This is from Yogi Berra. Unless you change direction, you will continue in the same direction. (laughs) Kind of says it, really. We've kind of been going along the same direction for quite a while, in a little deluded direction, full of our own kind of grandiose self-importance. And his other great line, or many, one of many, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. I don't know if that's quite as wise as the other one, but anyhow. So I'm always reticent to talk about uh, this issue in Dharma talks because it always raises a little bit of a um, unrest in in swathes of the people I'm talking to. But I think of it as my moral duty. <laughs> 
not to, you know, get on my pulpit, but to really raise the question and the consciousness and, and our reflectiveness, our inquiry around this issue. What is our relationship to the issue of, say, climate change and the climate crisis? What is our relationship to what's happening to the very earth we live on, to the air we breathe, to the water that we drink, to the, to the oceans that we seek solace in, to the forests that are burning up, 150 fires burning in British Columbia right now because of the drought up there. So when the friend was there recently in Vancouver, the sun is rising pink because <coughs> of the smoke. So it's interesting to notice what happens when you come into contact with this issue. Do you tend to go to sleep? Do you tend to check out? Do you get mad? Do you not care? Do you just notice what happens? Oh, we have a whole tribe of young ones coming down. See, part of the reason I bring it up is for those young ones. Because, right? you know, when the shit hits the fan, a lot of us won't be here. When the shit really hits the fan, most of us won't be here. Right? But they'll still be here. And they'll be asking, what did you do when you knew the shit was hitting the fan? Right? What action did you take personally? politically, economically, socially? It's a question for all of us. And again, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't do anything. This is really uh, a question for each of us to, to wrestle with. And it's one of those questions that's so big that it's sometimes overwhelming and therefore we choose to just you know, turn to the next thing at hand, whatever that might be. So the good news and the bad news. So the good news, I like to take. I like to. I think it's really important around these more global issues that can feel so insurmountable, to not just focus on the insurmountable. So, uh, friend and colleague Paul Hawken. Um, who's a wonderful visionary thinker around ecological issues. His, le- his penultimate book was called Blessed Unrest. Anybody read Blessed Unrest? No, a few. Okay. So Blessed Unrest was a book that he uh, felt somewhat compelled to write because um, he, he's very immersed in the social change movement and he began to realize the depth and the scope. He was, I forget exactly how it started, but um, anyway, he began to chronicle all the various um, organizations, NGOs, nonprofits, and other organizations that were working for social good, economic justice, environmental issues, and every kind of social concern uh, that there is. And so he began to, to collect this global data bank of all these organizations um, that he, I think the, the, the number that he came to was about one and a half million organizations around the world, probably employing tens of millions of people affecting probably maybe a billion people or more, I don't know, maybe billions of people. And it was a beautiful book. He, when he was giving his book tour, he would, uh, as part of his PowerPoint presentation, I think, he would have this, um, you know, um, at the end of a movie, you have the the, uh, credits. So instead of the credits for who made the movie, it was the credits of all these organizations. So just a list of, you know, whether it was Friends of the Earth or, you know, you name it, any social environmental organization. And he said, if you watch the credits of all the organizations that were doing work for the welfare and the happiness of the Earth and mankind, um, it would take, I think you'd have to sit in the movie theater 17 days or 17 weeks or something. It's just phenomenal. And, just, and it's incredibly heartful to think 
there are millions and millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions, if not more, people who both have the conscience and are doing amazing work to bring healing uh, and health and justice to people and species in the planet. So I take a lot of solace in that. There's other things I'll talk about in a minute that I uh, have uh, feel solace about. And then we have the bad news. And I'm not going to tell you the bad news because you kind of know the bad news. And if you don't know the bad news, then just Google it. <laughs> you, know, you can read a book called, I forget exactly what it's called, but the sixth maths extinction that we're now scientifically being validated that we're entering that phase where species die at an unprecedented rate. In the last 10 years, we lost the Vietnamese rhinoceros, we lost the Yangtze River dolphins, we lost the Pyrenean ibex, and a whole host of other species, probably known and unknown. Probably species dying that we never even actually had the blessing to encounter. So we live in this time, um, you know, which is a certain turning point uh, that we're in as a species. And one of the challenging things about this time as it, for, for uh, the species, the human species, is what's being asked of us is something that we're not developmentally quite there yet for which is to, um, you know, our, our, our brain and survival mechanism is built, is built on immediate threat and immediate response for survival. So we're, we're not hardwired to necessarily think in, in survival terms in a, in a longer term picture and in a picture that's not so self-referential. So we have to imagine, you know, a deep time where we're looking at the implications of actions, not just in the immediate future, not just in the two-year, four-year election cycle term, but in a much bigger uh, sweep. And it's a little hard to imagine you know, how to take action that's going to be with the welfare for seven or 70 generations. It's hard for us to imagine the climate change is happening. I mean, it's a little dry, you know, a little arid. Well, we're in a pretty bad drought. Okay, I admit that. Um, you know, but when El Nino comes this year, which it probably will smack bang into us and cause lots of floods and mudslides, you know, there'll be a lot of heads back in the sand going, oh, it's okay. The reservoirs are filled up. The aquifers are coming back. So the question I ask myself and I try to remind myself is, as is, is, um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter are we're not separate, we inter are, there's an in sense of interbeing, we're connected with life with each other. And if that's the case, then what's my response to uh, say this particular issue, one of many issues, important issues, that the very earth and uh, ecosystems that we live in and survive on are being uh, severely damaged. What, what, what's my inner response to that? Both from a heart perspective, from a from an action perspective. So one of the reasons I take people out into the wilderness is because, or into nature, I don't care where it is. It could be I taught in you know, parks in the city and university campuses, and um, you know I've taught in the San Quentin prison yard. Um, and why I do that is because I want people to fall back in love with the earth or fall more deeper in love with the earth. Because if we're in love with something, what do we do? We take care of it. We take care of that which we love. If we don't have a living, visceral relationship with it, eh, it's just another piece of land. You know, there's plenty of room. They can build a parking lot over there. They can build a mall over there. It's okay. We need, we need expansion. We need jobs, you know. But if we actually care for land, if we have an intimate, visceral relationship, we can feel that more, we might be actually more compelled to do something. So my closet motivation is that I birth a lot of eco-warriors. This is from John Seed, who is a Vipassana meditator in Australia, New South Wales. 
and he was living um, on the edge of an old growth forest and a friend called him and said, hey, you know, come down to the forest. The, they're doing some clear cutting. We're trying to, to, to slow down the, uh, the cutting so we can, we can get an injunction against the logging company. And so he went down and he found himself compelled because he so loves the forest that he found himself standing in the front of bulldozers and tractors and logging machines. And he had this vision that came to him, not vision, but a, a, a reflection or an insight um, that fueled much of his uh, activism work after that. He said, it's not, he realized it's not, this is quotation, it's not me defending the rainforest. The rainforests are defending themselves through me. So he felt so connected to the land and the forest that he felt like it wasn't a personal decision. It wasn't a separate self-decision. It was something being compelled. And I'm sure many of you know that, that you get compelled to move, to do the work that you do, to do the choices, uh, make the choices that you make. Right? Comes from somewhere, not necessarily from your head, comes necessarily not in your best self-interest, but you do that, you do that work anyway. You make those choices anyway, make those sacrifices anyway, whether it's for your children or for anything that you love. So I mostly chosen in my own work I'm, I'm not, I've spent my time in front of bulldozers and things, but mostly um, my work is uh, training and supporting those people who do that kind of work, whether it's activists, uh, people working for social justice, or training teachers who will uh, take these practices of wisdom and compassion out into the world. So one of the things that's most challenging about when we, when we confront suffering, we have our personal suffering, we have social suffering, familial suffering, uh, and then we have you know, uh, suffering on a scale, uh, in this case, that's suffering around the planet and uh, the extinction of species, and it's something that's very hard to hold. And so what happens, what the, what the personal self, the egoic self does, it contracts in overwhelm because the scale is too big for something that feels separate, which is why we often numb out, or we check out, or we disassociate, or we get busy, or we have a beer, or we watch, you know, the baseball. Or whatever, you know, your thing is. And we often think, and the thought that's partly fueling that is, well, I can't, it's too big a problem, I can't do anything it's overwhelming. Why bother? And then we forget that we're connected. And when we're connected collectively, we make a difference. We change the system by changing ourselves, but not just doing the internal work, but also the external work. So this is one of my favorite stories of um, how we can make a difference in small ways, but small ways lead to often bigger change. So it's a book about an acorn planter, and it goes like this. It's a very teeny book. In the 1930s, a young traveler was exploring the French Alps. He came upon a vast stretch of barren land that was desolate and forbidding. It was ugly, the kind of space you hurry away from. And suddenly the young traveler stopped dead in his tracks. In the middle of the vast wasteland was a bent-over old man. On his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four-foot length of iron pipe. The man was using the pipe to punch holes in the ground. Then from the sack he was carrying, he would grab an acorn and put it in the hole. Later the old man talked with the traveler and told him, I planted over 100,000 acorns. Perhaps only a tenth of them will grow. The old man's wife and his son had died, and this was how he chose to spend his final years. I want to do something Usefully said, and he also went on to plant uh, various other species of uh, trees. Twenty-five years later, the now not-so-young traveler came to the same desolate area again. What he saw amazed him. He couldn't believe his eyes. The land was covered with a beautiful forest two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and wildflowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that once was. A beautiful oak forest stood there now, all because somebody cared. So what, what the book describes is how that whole uh, region, I think it was in the Pyrenees, 
um, regenerated because the forest came back, then people started coming back, and then old farms uh, uh, began to be regenerated, and this whole thriving community and ecosystem began to grow um, because of a very simple action that had some purpose, that had some resiliency in it. So there's an interesting story about the Buddha um, who, you know, most of the pictures you see the Buddha, he's, you know, kind of navel-gazing a little bit, so you might not think of him as a social activist, but of course he was a quite a radical social activist in his time, confronting the, the orthodoxy of the caste system particularly, um, which was a social structure you were born into and very codified and oppressive. And the Buddha... Um, uh, really upended that whole social system. And um, he was also uh, uh, very much involved, as spiritual teachers were back then, with the nobility and with the, the kings and, and the various um, hierarchical political systems. Uh, and it was, at that time, it was like a feudal medieval Europe. There were was, was lots of kingdoms that were often at war with each other. And the Buddha was often called for counsel and guidance. And one particular time, uh, the king of Magadha, I believe, was about to attack the Buddha's uh, home country um, on the border of Nepal. And, uh, and the Buddha tried to advise against it. And so he went to sit on by the side of the road where the army would have to pass through, where the king and his army would pass through. And when the army filed through and the, and the king came by, the king stopped and they had a conversation about war and the, the pain and the futility and the violence and the suffering that would ensue with war. And so the king on the Buddha's council turned his army back and uh, didn't go to war. And then some years later, the same thing happened again. The Buddha again sat by the side of the road and tried to stop the, the king, or try to dissuade the king. And this time he failed. And his, uh, there was a lot of bloodshed and violence inflicted on his peoples. So, but I'm sure if he did it again, the Buddha would be sitting by the side of the road, successful or not, trying to uh, basically uh, reduce suffering which is really what the Pope's encyclical is about. How do we reduce suffering? How do we stop inflicting harm on ourselves and species and the planet and future generations? It's the moral imperative. So, one of the people that I take a lot of um, guidance from in this area is Joanna Macy, who's a teacher here. She's a wonderful Buddhist elder and scholar and activist who's been working on various issues around nuclear issues and ecological issues for at least the last 40 years, if not more. And one of the most important things she does in her work is she uh, supports people in grieving and feeling the pain and the rage and the injustice and the fear and the outrage at what's happening. Because if we don't actually feel and allow those feelings to move, then what happens is we go numb. And she says, the worst thing that can happen to the planet is not what we're doing to it, but our numbness in response to it. Pretty easy. Anybody here go numb around this stuff? Any, how many people are going numb in this talk? <laughs> Probably half of the room. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll be over soon. <laughs> they serve nice ice cream in Fairfax. Sorry, that was a little patronizing. I didn't mean that. I could have come across patronizing. That wasn't the intention. <laughs> they actually have very good ice cream in Fairfax. <laughs> Organic, you know, it's whatever. So if the ship is sinking, do you stop bailing? Do you give up? Or do you keep bailing? 
I, I once had lunch with Joanna and I said, and I, my, my intention for having lunch was to ask her about burnout. Like, how do you not get burnt out doing this work? How do you not, how do you stop yourself from getting jaded and cynical and despairing? And she said her advice to me and to I think probably everybody she meets is you have to be engaged and you have to be engaged, not, not the ring engaged, you have to be engaged with uh, people doing positive work. And she said, it doesn't matter if you fail. Winning or losing is not the point. The point is that you engage and you activate that part of us that can often, so often feel paralyzed. That's what uh, undercuts despair and alienation and isolation. So, this is a quote from an old wise person. All parts of the earth are built over trampled full of commerce, farms, and fields drive back the forest. Even rooks, rocks are cultivated, swamps are drained, and today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere on earth are residences, peoples, governments, and human growth now so clogs the world that it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. Terulian, 150 A.D., so this has been around for a while, just the uh, scale and the intensity and the, the, the magnitude is really exacerbated. So. We had an Earth Day celebration here a few years ago, and Paul Holcomb was here. We were invited with many other great speakers. And he gave this really fascinating talk about carbon. He's writing a book, if it's not already out, on reimagining carbon, the most polyamorous and uh, most polyamorous molecule in the universe, the most adaptive, which is why it's in every living thing on the planet. Was anybody here for that, that Earth Day? No, so really, okay, you are. So he had this slideshow, and um, he, he said, if you put all the carbon molecules of the Earth, all the carbon that exists molecularly, into a ball, right, you could fit that ball in San Geronimo Valley, which is this valley you drove through tonight. That's all there are. Yet, of course, they, you know, a tremendously powerful molecule when spread out and dispersed, particularly in the atmosphere, which is what's happening. But very interesting, he was trying to get us to see, to see that, he basically, his point was, he said, we, the problem with our relationship to the climate crisis is we have a problem of imagination. He said, visionaries are the realists in the world. Idealists are the realists. We have to imagine the unimaginable. We have to imagine the unimaginable. Right now it seems like it's, it's, it's hard to imagine what the solution is because the, because the, the crisis, because of the, the, the unleashing of the consequences of our actions from the Industrial Revolution onwards, it's triggered so many systems of, um, I can't think of the word, but are causing environmental degradation that it seems impossible to imagine how you'd reverse that. Well, you can't reverse it. But he says we have to imagine the unimaginable to realize that this too is workable, which I find very inspiring. Even if it's not true, I find it inspiring. (laughs) Even if it doesn't work, I find it inspiring. It gives me hope. Because as a species, we're incredible, incredible destruction and incredible creativity, an incredible transformation. It's in the brains, and we barely know. There's this neuroscientist who's one of the top researchers on the brain. He was asking his neuroscience students, he says, imagine you have a mile-long uh, piece of tape. Right? And at the beginning, this cup here is the beginning right, of the one mile, and this glass is the end of the one mile. And uh, 
neurosciences on this discovery of understanding the brain, right? So this is full discovery of the brain. This is zero understanding of the brain from a neuroscience perspective. Where on this mild continuum are we in current modern-day science? What do you think the answer was? So give me, give me some metrics, like for between zero and a mile. <laughs> he said three inches. You know, we're at the beginning, right? The, the brain is so vast, so complex, so amazing as is so many of the other you know, things we're discovering with ecosystems and just the complexity of life. I forget what the hell I was saying this for, but I had a, I had a reason for it. Um, imagining the unimaginable. So the, you know, the human mind has tremendous capability. And, as, and I, I take heart in all the probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are working creative ways to make a difference. And if you look back at recent human history, you know, there's been some amazing transformations that at the time seemed impossible. In the 1820s, the idea that slavery was going to be abolished was completely incomprehensible. It was the fabric of the economic system of the British Empire that ruled the world at the time, a lot of the world. Half the world was enslaved at that time in the, in the 1800s. Maybe we could never imagine that the Confederate flag would come down in South Carolina. Or to think that uh, we would allow gay marriage in this country through the Supreme Court. Right? That would seem impossible 10 years ago. Small changes, significant changes. And I take hope in the various uh, replenishment and reviving of species. Whether it's bald eagles or humpback whales or condors or many, many, many wonderful efforts to, to protect and restore and, and regenerate species who have been almost wiped out. So from a, from a Buddhist perspective, it's helpful, and I'll, I will wrap up soon. It's helpful to think about, well, what does this have to do with the Dharma? What does this have to do with Buddhism? Or what does Buddhism have to do with the environmental crisis? So the Buddha, of course, was living 2,600 years ago. And so... This was not happening back then, the clear-cutting of forests. But the Buddha had a very profound insight into human nature, which applies quite well to understanding where we are now, because it's the same thing, it's the same causes. The, cause, the causes that, that create our own pain and suffering are not separate from the suffering that we create in the world. It's not rocket science to see that. If you want to explore that ish topic more deeply, I, I recommend that you go online and you Google Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a preeminent Buddhist monk translator of the original text, who's now um, quite a vocal campaigner for uh, addressing the climate crisis through the Buddhist lens. So, the first noble truth, there's four truths that the Buddhists talked about. The first truth, there is suffering. Duh. But in this context, there is suffering of species extinction. There is suffering of famine, of droughts. These are all, you could say, man created through the climate change. Droughts, famines, floods mudslides, there'll be huge migrations of populations, and all the other impacts that we know are coming, uh, degradation of uh, uh, the health of ecosystems, species loss, etc. A lot of suffering, and you know, the, probably the, 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 the main 
political body that's savvy to the implications of this is the military. The military probably most uh, 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 what's the word? cognizant of the impacts this, will, this is and will have around the world. The second uh, truth is there are the causes to suffering. So what are the causes for climate change, for ecological crisis? What are the causes for our own suffering? Anyone would like to say? Greed. One of the three primary things the Buddha spoke to, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, is that obvious? <laughs> our consumption, our materialism, our self-centeredness, our obsession with things, with toys, with... But I think more deeper than that, if we look at the economic system, our economic system is driven by a greed for growth. We have a model based on the need for incessant growth. Right? The problem is we live in a finite planet, and incessant growth and finite planet do not go well together. If we had a number of planets, it would be okay. We could just keep, you know, repeating, but that's we don't. So it's this fundamental challenge of our whole economic system is based on growth. And here we have a rise, we're going to have two billion more people rising into the middle classes in the next few gener- in the next few decades. All who will want similar material standard of wealth that we do. Unsustainable. What is the answer? Who knows? But it's clear that we can look at the causes, which is this insatiable need for the egoic gratification through sense pleasure, through things, through stuff. And the aversion, the other flip side of that, is our ability to be able to, uh, to uh, act out that need, that greed, regardless of the consequences of others or other species. So I was working with a this person on the retreat last week who's been working with doing social justice work in Paraguay, which was, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago, beautiful virgin rainforest, primarily rainforest-covered country. And now uh, 85% of the forest has been cut down in the last, I don't know, three decades. And now it's uh, the, fourth, the world's fourth biggest producer of soybeans. We placed virgin rainforest for soybeans, which mostly probably go to feed cattle for our burgers. So it's all part of a complex economic system built on profit, greed, and disregard for the consequences. And then the Buddha said, there is, a, there, is, there is cessation of the causes of suffering. There is cessation of greed. There is cessation of hatred. There is cessation of delusion. So I'd say partly why I'm giving this talk is to just remind us to look at deeply at the causes of life, our lifestyle, our choices, our actions, our decisions. Because we are interconnected, because we are interrelated, because our actions do have consequences, what is our responsibility as a person, as a parent, as a community member, as a whatever your work is? We have to collectively wake up, collectively engage in some way. We have to understand that we're in a crisis. So again, just to reflect on well, where am I in this spectrum? How do I relate to this, these, these truths, these four noble truths which are personal? There's, cause, there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a release from the causes, and then there's a path, there's a way forward. What, is, what would that path look like if I'm going to live in a way that's more in alignment with being sustainable, with being more ecologically aware, because not because I'm an environmentalist and I have a badge, but because I care about 
where I live. I care about what, these, what, what earth these children will inherit in 10, 20 years. So therefore I look at my life, I look at my actions, I look at my choices, I look at my investments, I look at my decisions. But again, I think, and I'm going to close with this, I think what's important is, you know, it's easy to hear talks like this or read things about this and and we feel guilty and we feel like we should or we shouldn't. And, And again, coming back to how I started the talk, which was around, you know, what do we really care about? What do we love? What do we connect to? What are we fed by? And to see if we can step out of this this myth of separation, this myth that we're not connected, this myth that it doesn't make a difference what we do. So your homework for for the rest of your life is... um, (laughs) It's good homework. <laughs> so, you know, we live in the Bay Area, right? We're very blessed, one, to be here. Two, we're blessed to have beautiful nature all around. So, go out in it. <laughs> right? Don't just look at it through, the, through your windscreen or your kitchen window or your office window, but go outside. Enjoy the beauty. Enjoy what we have and love it. Let yourself fall in love with it and let it speak to you and through you. There's another haiku from this, um, I think it might be the same poet. Yeah, it is. Well, there's a funny, I'll share another funny uh, haiku from him because it's hot and sweaty, so this, this, this haiku is relevant. He says, um, um, Hot summer evening, snails moving slowly across the floor, <coughs> topless. or shirt sleeves rolled up something like that and the last poem is um, which speaks to the theme in the cherry blossom shade in the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger in the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger so Thank you for your enduring patience with my talk. And um, may our practice and our lives be for the welfare and the happiness of all life, including this beautiful planet. So nice to see you. I think I'm back the first Monday in August. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.